Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranolytics podcast is powered by my company, mattcundellvoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system, consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundellvoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, podcast fans? How you doing? Welcome to episode number 105 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today's Tuesday, March 26, 2019. Thank you as always for listening and for downloading. If you haven't subscribed yet, please go ahead and do so. Also take a minute to rate and review. It only takes a short amount of time and I'm telling you, it really, really helps out the podcast tremendously. We also have a brand new YouTube page. Moranalytics Podcast. If you go there, hit subscribe. You'll get audio clips from specific podcasts. You'll get some original audio content that's coming soon. And we're also eventually going to get into doing some videos. So stay tuned for that. Coming up on today's show, this is a good one. This is one that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. I have arguably the best offensive tackle in Buffalo Bills franchise history. Will Wolford is going to join me today. It's a rare interview. Will doesn't do a bunch of interviews, so this is a really, really good gift for this podcast. I'm all kinds of pumped, and I'll tell you what, I always knew that Will Wolford was a a great football player. I never had any idea that he was such a good storyteller. This interview is littered with great stories, a real treat for Buffalo Bills fans there's a, there's a lot of stories in this interview that I like, but specifically one, my favorite, and I'm going to tease it a little bit here. Will tells a story about his rookie year back in, uh, it was 1986. Got drafted in the first round, picked 20 overall, and the team stunk. They were coming off back-to-back 2-14 and 14 seasons. Kay Stevenson was the head coach. He got fired. Hank Bullock came in, and this team despised Hank Bullock. They loathed him. They did not like him as a coach. They wanted him out. They got wind that they went down to Tampa for a game and got wind that if they were to lose, that Bola was going to get fired. Essentially, they went down there to Tampa and they tanked. They tanked the game. Hank Bola got fired. Marv Levy came in and pretty much from there, the rest was history. So we talk about that. He hits on if the Bickering Bills term was one that was deserved. Talks about his time in Buffalo, that controversial contract. And if you followed the Buffalo Bills long enough, you'll remember this. Back in 1993, the first year ever of NFL free agency, Will Wolford signed a, what was at the time a very controversial contract with the Indianapolis Colts. Pretty much it was a poison pill and left the Bills unable to match. We talk about that, how hard it was for him, not just him, but also his wife to leave Buffalo. She loved Buffalo a lot. Discuss all that stuff. Plus his path to the NFL before he got there. 
what he's been doing in the years since he's retired from the NFL. He talks about his good friend, Eric Wood. He goes through the traditional Moranalytics podcast mini lightning round to end things. Much more. I'm not just saying this. Listen, I really, truly mean it. This is, without question, one of my favorite interviews I've had. 105 episodes I've done for this podcast. And I'm telling you, this one is right up there amongst my very favorites. Great stuff. Again, a rare interview with Will Wolford. Must listen for Bills fans, especially fans from back in the day when the team was a perennial Super Bowl contender. Good stuff. After that, I take my first crack at what will be many on this podcast between now and April 25th at doing a four-round Buffalo Bills mock draft. To do it, I used uh, the computer simulator on that draftnetwork.com. And what it does is it simulates the picks for the other 31 teams, and then you pick for the Bills, which was really fun to do. Plus, I did it in real time. I didn't pre-prepare for it. In fact, as the tape was rolling, I ran the simulator and I did the the mock draft. Uh, The meat and potatoes of free agency, it's over. Although the Bills did bring back EJ Gaines on Monday. That was pretty cool. But for the most part, it's time to turn our attention to the draft. I'll do this exercise on each episode leading up to the draft on April 25th, or at least the ones I can when I can fit it in. And I'll have some thoughts and takes on what I think Brandon Bean may be thinking when he's in that war room in the Buffalo Bills are on the clock with their picks. And by the way, I said a four-round mock draft, not doing seven because I don't know any players beyond the fourth round. I would just be guessing. And the Bills do have five picks over the first four rounds. So that's exciting enough. I'll have that, and I'll have the Will Wolford interview in just a minute. Before getting into that, though, real quick, got to send a shout-out to the UB men's and women's hoops teams. I mean, they just, they did Western New York so proud again in a big way last week. Sure, they both fell short in the second round of their respective tournaments, but don't let that shit take away from outstanding seasons. I mean, they're continuing to further UB as a rising national program. I'm just so proud of that program. I I love that the standard isn't just get to the NCAA tournament. If you're a college hoops fan in Western New York, that used to be the standard. If everything goes right, you win your conference, maybe you could get there. That's not the case with UB anymore. Now it's about winning some games and being a Sweet 16 team. I think that's a new standard for UB men's and women's hoops, and I think it's awesome. So congratulations to both of them on fantastic seasons. And conversely, congratulations to the Buffalo Sabres as well. They went from being tied for first in the NHL near the end of November to being officially mathematically eliminated from the playoffs just 49 games later. They're only the second team, by the way, NHL history. Only the second team ever to have a 10-game winning streak and not make the playoffs. So congratulations to them on sinking to a new level of mediocrity. They play like a bunch of soft bums, soft team, soft head coach. And the worst part, don't hold your breath. If you're expecting Phil Housley to get fired when the season's over, don't hold your breath. I'm telling you. Whatever, man. Enough about the crappy Buffalo Sabres. Let's jump into today's show. It's a big winner. Here it is, my interview with all-time Buffalo Bills great Will Wolford. 
Okay, my guest today, and I'm excited for this one. He played seven seasons with the Buffalo Bills, 13 overall in the NFL. He was a huge part of the Buffalo Bills' golden Super Bowl era. He's arguably the greatest offensive tackle in franchise history. Not going to get an argument from me. I am talking about Will Wolford. What's going on, Will? Thanks so much for doing the podcast today. How you doing? Uh, everything's good. Doing very well. Good to hear. I talked to Eric Wood earlier. Said he loves you. You're one of his closest friends, and, and he's really <laughs> he's pumped to listen to this. Uh, I've gotten to know Eric very well over the years. He uh, he grew up in Cincinnati, but he played his uh, his college ball here in my hometown of Louisville. So I've gotten to know him uh, uh, really well. He's he's part time the son I never had, and and part time just very good friend. That's um, cool. Now uh, yeah. uh, he's a wonderful kid, and and uh, uh, was a fantastic football player. Represented everybody so well. Um, uh, in his time in Buffalo, and still does. He's a great representative for the team. Now, you mentioned Louisville. You were born in Louisville, Kentucky. Did you grow up there loving football as a young kid, or was it something that you got into a little bit later on as you got older? I know you were a hell of a basketball player, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, growing up here, I loved basketball. Uh, from a very young age, I mean, that's what we did in the neighborhood. Uh, it was literally every day. Uh, football was very much an acquired taste. My dad literally forced me to play in fourth grade with my older brother, who was a fifth grader on the fifth and sixth grade team. I remember nah, I didn't have a clue where to line up. Uh, everyone laughed at me. They were like, oh, line up a defensive tackle, and I just looked at the guy. Uh, but I got very lucky. I had a sack because the guy in front of me fell down. I went and made a sack uh, to win a game once as a fourth grader and everybody celebrated and I really had no idea what what they were celebrating <laughs> but I was uh, always pretty good at, at basketball um, and football it was hit or miss until really uh, towards the end of my high school career not a lot of people know this but when you were at St. Xavier High School in Louisville you were actually an honorable mention all state selection for basketball uh, on a pretty good team too. They could have picked a number of guys on our team. We uh, we started uh, four, six, five guys and, and a six foot point guard, and I was anointed the center of that team. Um, but we had a nice we had a nice club, one of the, one of the better ones in the state. And and I'm the kind of guy if I don't if I'm not good at something, I'm not going to like it. So I was pretty good at basketball and I absolutely loved it. I uh, was really thinking I was going to play basketball in college, had a backup plan to go to Dayton and, and play basketball and football there. If division one didn't work out. Um, but then division one football did work out. How old were you? Will, when you first realized that you were good enough at playing football to do something with that, by that, I mean, at a minimum, have it be able to pave your way to continue your education in college. How old were you? Do you remember? Um, junior year in high school, but I had in training camp of junior year, I broke um, um, my thumb, literally broke it in half, and then played a couple games and broke my leg, literally completely in half. Oh, wow. I only played a couple games my junior year and figured – Wow, maybe football is not going to work out. But by that time, I'd already grown to six foot five, 
you know, I was already running track and playing basketball at the same time. I went into high school at 5'11", so I had a big growth spurt my first two years. It wasn't very heavy, but uh, my dad played pro football as a gigantic man, um, so I knew the weight was coming. But I didn't have a lot of success, so I went in <laughs> junior year, actually recovered from the broken leg enough to play in the playoffs um, in basketball that year and did fairly well so it was around junior year i knew i was probably going to play but again if i keep getting hurt like this i'm not going to make it anywhere right why did you end up going to vanderbilt one of my favorite things when i get an opportunity to have an athlete on the show is find out the college that they went to why they went there and what other schools did you consider besides vandy were there other schools in the mix or was it vandy for you all the way uh, there were there were plenty of schools in the mix early on. When I ended up playing basketball my junior year and recovering from the injuries, teams came around. They started offering, so I was offered from Purdue, Vanderbilt, Notre Dame, which is a you know growing up Catholic in Louisville, Kentucky was a dream. Notre sure. Dame offered me as a junior. Oh wow! Um, Tennessee was was pursuing me pretty hard, but I never really considered them. So I rolled into my senior year with a lot of those teams. Um, he had already offered me, uh, but then my senior year, I don't get hurt, but, I but I catch viral meningitis <laughs> and oh, you can't wow. make this up. And again, in training camp, viral meningitis. And within one week I go from 240 pounds to about 205. And, um, I didn't play very well my senior year because of that. Now I regained the weight as the season went on, but, you know, but at the end of the day, Notre Dame ended up pulling their scholarship two weeks before the signing date. Um, Vanderbilt stuck with me all along. Kentucky was another school that stuck with me all along. Um, but then it really came down to, to Vanderbilt and Kentucky. And the big deciding factor there was that I started dating my wife uh, going in the sophomore year, actually going the summer of sophomore year in high school. She went to an all-girls Catholic high school. I went to the all-boys across town. And she was very smart, and uh, it was really kind of her decision, and I followed her to Vanderbilt uh, as much as anything. So um, it was uh, – I think, though, although if Notre Dame wouldn't have pulled, I'm pretty sure I would have ended ended up in Notre Dame. And she actually had already applied to St. Mary's a School right up there next to it. So we uh, we kind of coordinated things out, and, and it worked. You know, after four years of college and a couple years in the NFL, we did get married. Yeah, that's great. So you go to Vandy, you play guard first, and then eventually you move to right tackle. Did you personally prefer one position over the other, or did it not matter to you? Oh, I enjoyed them both. Uh, I always thought I was a better guard because um, I enjoy the running part of it, the, the, the pulling and getting out on screens and whatnot. But um, the one thing I liked about tackle is that you were usually matched up against one guy the whole time, and eventually someone was going to win. And in any guard, you never knew if you were getting a couple different defensive linemen or uncovered completely or, or what. But in tackle, it was more of a you know a one-on-one situation, and I enjoyed that. You were a team captain as a senior, earned all SEC honors. You'd go on to become a first-round draft pick. We'll get to that in a second. Before that, though, When I have an athlete on, I love hearing about the process between the end of your college career and the draft. What was that process like for you? Was it a little overwhelming at times going from finishing up your career, leading up to the draft? A little bit. I mean, it was a long time ago. So the whole 
preparation for the draft, you were you were on your own. Uh, you know, we're talking about 1986. So, I mean, I knew what was going to happen in the combine. So, to get ready for the, uh, you know, for the vertical jump, I would just go to the basketball gym and, and, and dunk basketballs over and over and over. Um, I ran track in high school, so I knew you know, I knew how to run a 40. I knew how to get out of the blocks and how to start it. And um, I think playing a lot of basketball helps you when you do the 15-yard uh, shuttle because you learn real quick when you run a lot of suicides how to maximize or be very efficient and not run too far and stop and reach for that line without running past it. So I just trained all that stuff on my own. Picking an agent was um, a little weird, uh, no doubt. Um, it was back when a lot of people were breaking rules left, right, and center and find you all over. And I think with my background and my father and attending Vanderbilt, I didn't get a whole lot of it, but I certainly had a few people who offered me things that they shouldn't have. Um, and uh, ended up making a very good decision there and signed with a guy named uh, Ralph Sendrich, who played in the NFL, was an attorney, uh-huh. uh, very straightforward guy. And Ralph was ended up being very successful as an agent. Um, that that really helped. But leading up to the draft, I mean, I was doing it on my own. I played in a couple bowl games, and they were very difficult. Play, the senior bowl was very difficult. I mean, that was two-a-day practices back then, full pads. We got after it, and I was playing against some of the best of the best, and it was uh, it was a tough deal. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it all paid off. It definitely paid off. So you're picked by the Bills in the first round of the 86 draft, 20th overall. You're the second Buffalo Bills player taken in the first round of that draft. Not everyone remembers this, but originally that was the San Francisco 49ers pick at 20. Buffalo moved up in the draft to get you. What were your feelings at that precise time when Buffalo called? Because at that time, let's face it, the Bills were awful. They were coming off back-to-back 2-14 and 14 seasons. Frankly, they were a laughing stock around the league, far and away the worst team in the NFL. So at that time, when they called, what was your instant, immediate reaction? Um, well, it, it was strange because Buffalo had already picked 16th and taken Ronnie Harmon. Right. So yep. when Buffalo called me before the 20th pick, I wasn't sure that they were going to, you know, San Fran had the pick, like you said. I didn't know that they were going to trade. They didn't tell me they were going to trade. They just said, you know, it was Bill Polian was like, hey, Will, how you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm doing good. He's like, um, just want to know, um, we're thinking about drafting you. Would you be excited to be a Buffalo Bill? And I'm like, yes, sir, I would. But he didn't say, we're getting ready to make a trade for you here in the next 30 seconds. And draft you. <laughs> I thought. I thought, uh-oh, I'm going in the second round, and I'm going to Buffalo when we hung up. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm not going to be a first-round pick. Because um, I had a hard time grasping that I would be a first-round pick. I, did, I never really yeah, – I mean, I knew I played against some good guys and were guys that I played against in Georgia and Alabama that, were, that ended up being first- and second-rounders. But I wasn't 100% sure you know, I was going because I ended up being the sixth offensive lineman taken that year in the first round. So when they when it was announced that you know San Francisco's made a trade with Buffalo, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so it was it was really uh, it was a it was a great deal, and, and my, my future bride was with me and a couple close friends, and that was that was it because I had an exam that day uh, before it, so I took an exam and I had an exam after it 
that I did show up too late and uh, got done early. I wasn't too worried about that exam after it, after I was picked in the first round. <laughs> was it a little bit of culture shock for you, though? You know, you grew up in the South, you played in the South, and then you're going up to Buffalo. I'm going to assume that at the time you really didn't know much about Buffalo. Um, all the way around. I mean, I didn't really know the town, didn't know the city, didn't know the area. I never traveled much as a kid, you know, other than traveling, um, uh, you know, with the football team and not flowing on a whole lot of airplanes and had not seen a whole lot of the world. And then just to step into a Buffalo culture, the Buffalo Bills, that was, um, you know, it really changed from day one when I was there. It was almost like North Dallas 40 type to where it really modernized in, in the first year or two when Coach Levy took over. It was it was a culture shock all the way. You know, my first game, you know, we, at halftime, half the team was smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Game's over, and, you know, there's, there's, there's cases of beer everywhere. And I was like, wow, man, welcome to the NFL. Well, all that quickly changed when Coach Levy took over, and then the entire league changed uh, that way as well. Yeah, like I said, the, the Bills were coming off back-to-back 2-14 and 14 seasons the year before you're drafted, but like not even like a week after you signed your contract. That's when Jim Kelly arrived in Buffalo, you know, the whole out to go in the USFL thing. That ended. So it didn't happen immediately. You know, it took a couple of years to start winning games, but could you feel the fortunes of the team and the vibes starting to change as, as you were getting better, going from being, you know, quite possibly the worst team in the NFL to ascend towards being one of the best? Uh, not until Coach Levy got there, because he took over midseason. So Hank Bull was our coach for a while, and it was so incredibly negative. I've never seen anything like it, or people really wouldn't even believe how negative the the atmosphere was. Everybody, there was no team to it. Everybody was out for themselves. And I was a 21-year-old kid who not start shaving yet. And because I was a first-round pick, they were – pushing me into the lineup to play and there are a lot of guys who didn't appreciate that or care for that um jim came in and certainly added to you know the turnaround immediately but not really until coach levy took over did things uh become positive and he started bringing the guys together um there are a lot of older players who did not care for coach bola at all and literally you know we were playing Tampa my first year, and, and, and they knew that if we lost to Tampa, he was getting fired. Now, again, I'm just a young kid who's naive and taking all this in second, third hand. But we literally had players in, in, before the game and at halftime saying, if you make a tackle, if you catch the ball, if you play any good, I'll kill you. And uh, <laughs> we went out and we lost the game. Uh, we lost the game on purpose, and sure enough, um, you know, Coach Bola was fired, and, and Marv Levy was hired, and and really it was all she wrote. Uh, you know, uh, you, you put the combo of Bill Polian and Marv Levy together, and uh, magic happened. And uh, those two guys, you know, they're uh, very lucky that I was associated with them as a rookie because before then it was it was pretty hectic. One of the first things Marv did, you moved to left tackle after Marv got there. You started as a rookie, as a right guard. And again, not a lot of fans will remember this because you're a rookie, but Marv moved you to left tackle in 1987. Was that an exciting move for you? Were you happy to go there? I I was um, for the challenge of it. Uh, But it's not like I was 6'7 with really long arms. I was 6'5 with average arms and length and uh the pass blocking at that position uh, 
and very difficult job. Um, and I remember Coach uh, Jim Ringo telling me at that time, he said, listen, I know you're a better guard than tackle, but we need you at left tackle. But don't worry about it. You'll make that much more money playing that position. So um, the switch was on. The very first game at left tackle, too, I played against Chris Dolman, who was a Pro Bowl player and a future Hall of Famer. And we played him at home, which was nice to not have to play the first game on the road. Right. You know, things went pretty well. So uh, um, after that point, I was like, well, I guess I can, I can, I can do the job and I'll, uh, and I'll, and I'll stay here. Um, but, uh, a much easier position in guard, which I would find out later in my career, uh, with the Pittsburgh Steelers once I got back to it. But, um, a lot of love hate there at the left tackle. When you're playing left tackle, you play the game, you know, like, whew, thank God that went pretty good. Didn't embarrass myself or the family. You got about an hour to celebrate. And then you start thinking about the guy you got to block the very next week. And, and it's on again. And when you play guard, you don't worry about anything. You're like, who do I got? Oh, big deal. I got guys around me, especially when you, you know, my first year I played between Ken Hall and Joe Devlin. That was, that was awesome. Cause right. I had the experience of Joe Devlin, who was truly one of the greatest players ever, who never spoke to the media, never got a lot of attention, but Joe was great. And he was a great guy to learn from just to watch how he, uh, approached the game, trained for the game, uh, went to battle during the game. I mean, it was, it was great. And then Kent had played a couple years in the USFL, but, uh, he was immediately just a, you know, a very solid player on his way to being great. Or, or my first year. You spent seven seasons with the bills by the end of that second season. Like I said, the losing was over. You guys would become a powerhouse. You played three Super Bowls, four AFC championship games, you made a couple Pro Bowls, and by the way, that was back when making the Pro Bowl meant something. What did it feel like to run out of that tunnel? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't mean a thing now, but back in that day, being a Pro Bowler, that meant a lot. What did it feel like to run out of that tunnel in Orchard Park during those years, knowing that you were an important piece of something special that was being built? Um, It, it was about as good as it gets. There, There's something to... Um, there's something about game day that you just, you can't replicate. It's, it's just a great feeling to go out there and the freedom of playing the game that, you know, it's on you, you know, no one's helping you right now. The coach is not going to help you, your teammate, you, you got to play and the pressure is on you too, because you don't want to let anybody down and coach Levy and Bill Pullian did such a great job building the team aspect and i and i mentioned bill pullian too because his wife eileen really helped bring everyone together and build the culture of getting everybody to feel like family um but to go out on the field and play that way and then also have the confidence that you knew you're going to win and i think for my last five years in buffalo we may have lost a home game or two but odds are they didn't mean anything and they were at the end of the season very rarely did we lose so we knew we were going to go out, we were going to win the game, and then afterwards we were going to go to Jim Kelly's. Well, we were going to go to Elio DePaulo's first, and then we were going to Jim Kelly's house second for a party. And that was my last five years in Buffalo, which, believe me, it doesn't get any better than that. Marv did such a good job at managing the team, keeping chemistry, because, let's, I mean, let's face it, there were a lot of quote-unquote superstars, individual superstars on the Buffalo Bills during that time. Guys like Jim Kelly, Andre Reid, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, Cornelius Bennett, etc. But it seemed like he knew how to get everyone to check their ego at the door. 
so to speak. And I know it might sound corny, but the Buffalo Bills, during that time, they played for each other and not for themselves. There's lots of teams around the NFL before, since, after that have been very talented, but didn't win nowhere near as much, I think, for that reason, because they just don't play as a team. There's too many individuals. But to Marv's credit, you know, whether it was overcoming adversity following Super Bowl losses, just continuing to play hard and have that love for each other in the locker room. So it seems going by, you know, a bunch of players that I have spoken with, it seems like his ability to manage egos and manage a team more so maybe than X's and O's was his best trait as a head coach. Do you agree with that? Oh, you've done your homework because there's no doubt about it. Um, if you look at some of the other teams that were like Houston, incredibly talented over those years, uh, Minnesota, just more talent than, you know, certainly as much as we had a lot of teams, the, the difference was coach Levy. Uh, there's no doubt. He, he did, he was able to get a bunch of guys who did have strong egos and had success and were dealing with that success and trying not to get too cocky and truly getting us, you know, to tone it down a little bit and still stick together and play as a team. So it was, it was easily his best trait. And, uh, and that's what separates coach Levy from all the other guys that coached during his time. And, and that's why he's in the hall of fame. Fans, media, everyone. They look back at that Buffalo Bills teams of the early nineties that kept going to the Super Bowls. One of the greatest teams in NFL history. That's how everyone perceives a team now. Back then, it was much more difficult, you know, being quote-unquote choke artist, you can't win the big one. How tough was it to come so close for, for in your case, three straight years and then fall a little short? As, as a competitor, how much does that hurt after the Super Bowl? Uh, I never really listened to that noise until after I left Buffalo. When you're going through it, you realize how hard it is to get there every year. So, um you know, we lost the first one, a game that most people thought we should have won, a game that I certainly thought we should have won. And probably if we play the Giants 10 times, that's the only way they beat us. Um, you know, went back and, you know, yeah, we didn't have any success against Minnesota, but we knew how ridiculously hard it was to get there. So as soon as the season's over, all right, let's do it again. And uh, that's the attitude the team, the team had. You know, looking once I left and looking back on it, I didn't talk about it a whole lot because then it would sink in. I was like, God, I can't believe we didn't win one of them. Right. And if we'd have won one of them, we might have won two or three. Um, but now while you were going through it, nah. Uh, that was a great thing about living in Buffalo. When I lived in Buffalo, I didn't travel much. I lived there year-round and, and loved it. And, that, you know, again, that's that's before everybody had a cell phone and before the Internet was crushing it. And, and if somebody got in trouble, everybody knew it in eight seconds, you know. It, it was, uh, you know, you you could live in your own little world there and, and just enjoy it. And I, and I really did. You were part of a, a major part of the first NFL free agent class in 1993. You deserve to get paid. And I mean, man, you got paid. You were a transitional free agent. The Colts signed you to a three-year deal, making you the highest paid offensive lineman at the time in the NFL. Now, Buffalo had a right to match, but realistically, they couldn't because the Colts put language in that contract about you having to be the highest paid offensive player on the team. Now, obviously, with Jim Thurman, Andre, that wasn't going to happen. The Bills would protest with the league, but to no avail. I mean, obviously, it's an offer you can't refuse, and you would have been insane if you did, but I can only imagine that it was a little bittersweet for you 
on one hand, you're making a smart business decision that anyone else would. You're going to get a, a better contract, make a better financial life for yourself. But at the same token, I would imagine it was probably hard for you to leave Buffalo after seven great years as well. How hard was that? Uh, it was brutal. <laughs> it was, it was, it was so bittersweet. It was, um, it was hard to believe that so many things were hitting at once. Cause my wife was pregnant with our first child as well. And she was, she was due, uh, at that time. Um, and I had traveled around and I went to Seattle and, and Green Bay and they had all made similar type offers. But when I went to Indianapolis, they're the ones that, that Jimmy Ursay came up with the clause that if I wasn't the highest paid offensive player on the team, whatever the difference was, I had to make it twice. That was that was the clause. And he had a couple two two different things would trigger it, but they were very easy to hit, like playing forty percent of the plays or something and something else. Um but the real deal breaker deal maker for me in Indy is that Ted March Broda was there. Um, you know, and, and, and having spent time with Ted and, you know, besides Marv Levy, t- Ted Margibroda is, you know, he's, he's up there on the totem pole as one of the greatest coaches, people of all time. Um, so I knew that, you know, if I'm going to leave Buffalo, um, Indianapolis is the team to go to, but you're right with the transition tag. I never really considered it because Buffalo all along said, ah, whatever it is, we'll, we'll match it. We'll match it. Don't worry about it. But I knew when I signed it, um, with those clauses in there, I was like, oh my God, this is really going to happen. I'm not going to be in Buffalo. And I went, I remember going back and, uh, and telling Jude, uh, my wife and, um, um, she was, she wasn't, she was upset. I mean, she loved living in Western New York. She went to law school there, had a job there, knew a lot of people. Um, you know, again, back then we didn't travel, so we, we spent a lot of time there. Uh, and I remember going to the Big Tree Inn and ordering a beer and literally looked like uh, white as a ghost, looked like I was going to throw up. And and, uh, and Dane DeMarco, the man, came up. He's like, what's wrong? I'm like, well, I, I signed a contract with Indianapolis. He said, well, don't worry about it. You know, the bills are going to match it. I'm like, I don't, I don't think they can, Danny. I don't think they can do it. And it was, it, it was definitely bittersweet. But then again, I went to Indy, and and I truly loved Jimmy Irsay was was the general manager at that time, and he and he did a great job putting together a pretty good team, and Ted Marchbro did a great job managing a good team. But believe me, I, I hated leaving one family for another. I think 1993 might be the year where, if there were naive fans out there, it was the year where everyone learned that the NFL really is a business. I mean, it it's always been a business, but starting with free agency with that year, it became really transparent that the NFL is indeed a business. And again, you love playing in Buffalo. Everybody knows that, but I mean, you'd be borderline insane to not take a contract like that from Indianapolis. Well, for sure. And the other thing too, is that I knew I had some screwed up shoulders. I had one shoulder that was wearing tear. that was getting bad. And then I had another one that I tore acutely in the, um, in the Super Bowl that year. And um, I knew I had to have surgery. And, and Buffalo wasn't real clear cut about, all right, we're going to do surgery. Um, so I literally signed my contract. Pete Ward from Indianapolis, who's now one of the presidents, he shows up in a taxi, comes to our house in, in Buffalo on Stonehenge Drive, sign, sign the contract, get the signing bonus, have the wife. We go to Morgan Stanley office 
to drop off the signing bonus, deposit it, and then go to the hospital where she is induced and, is, and gives birth. She gives birth. As soon as it's over, two days later, I fly to Indy, and I go have surgery, and uh, I have my shoulder fixed. I'm there for a couple more days and come back home to my bride with a newborn. I mean, it was uh, it was a wild time, to say the least. And, I mean, a happy time, sure. I mean, but but ridiculously sad, yeah, a little bit. Um, a lot of mixed emotions at that time. Looking back now, all these years later, how do you remember your time in Buffalo? Like I said at the very top here during the intro, you're widely regarded as one of, if not the best offensive tackle in Buffalo Bills history. And as a whole, that offensive line was just incredible during that time. You know, guys like Jim Kelly and Thurman and Andre, they get all the credit. You know what? I don't want to say all the credit because that's not true. They got all the headlines. They're the big names. They're the ones who are most well-known for the K-God offense being so great. But without question, and anyone who follows the Buffalo Bills during that time would attest to this, it was the offensive line that really, truly made that K-Gun go. How do you remember your time, looking back now, all these years, back with Buffalo? Um, I was fortunate. And one good thing about playing with other teams is I played on a nice line in Indy, and I played on a very nice line in, in Pittsburgh with Dramari Dawson and, and John Jackson and um, some guys that, that were very good players. Um, no doubt the line I played on in Buffalo was uh, was about as good as it gets. Um you know, it's nice to be mentioned. You know, in a category as best of anything, um, but certainly Howard Bowers in that conversation. And it was great to watch Howard develop as a, you know, a, a gigantic man who really had to was so smart about learning the game and watch him develop into one of the best in the league. Um, when it's not like he had the athletic ability to make up for a mistake. So he was incredibly smart and diligent with his, his footwork and his hands. And, and he rarely took a bad step anywhere because he knew he couldn't. And when you're that big and you don't do any of that, make any of those mistakes early on, you know, you're going to win the play. Um, Ken Hull, my best friend, um, great football player, uh, great person, great leader. Um, you know, he, he could have gotten MVP of that team every year for, uh, being the glue that connected um, uh, the offense and and the team to, together, uh, playing next to Jimmy Richer, who uh, just a beast. I mean, he was an Outland Award winner, a first round pick, but you know, I, every time I see Jimmy, he looks like he can still play. He probably can still run a four eight forty. Um, ended up playing 15 or 16, 17 years in the NFL and was at 260 pounds playing guard. Uh, no one wanted to play against him because he did whatever it took to win on the field. Uh, and he was, uh, he, he was just a heck of a player. And then, uh, and then John Davis on the right side with the house. I mean, John Davis was a big man who could play, um, could move and move people out. Um, and then, you know, even, even backups with, with Glenn Parker, uh, Bubba was awesome. Bubba learned the game and developed and, you know, early on people thought his career wouldn't last more than six seconds, but, uh, ended up lasting, I don't know, double digits, I believe, and became a, a very good player in his own right. But that, that whole team, uh, that whole offensive line top to bottom was, uh, was really good and, uh, and a great bunch of guys to play with. Now you mentioned Howard Ballard. He did develop into a great tackle. 
Everyone remembers the Jim Kelly incident with him, them two going at it and the whole bickering bills. Like, how much truth was that to it? When you hear the word bickering bills at that time, did that bother you or was it pretty accurate? That's the way it was at the time. Um, there was, there was some truth to it. And, and that incident was just one part of it. There was a little bit more than that going on besides that one part that I'm not going to get into okay. uh, publicly, but that one really was the one that kind of spiked it and then quickly ended it as well because it drew attention to it and it made everybody step back a little bit and, and realize, well, you know, what are we doing here? You know, how, how can we, you know, reach our potential and, 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 and be any good, much less survive, uh, you know, if we're just going to, with so much infighting going on. And um, and it really, uh, after that point with Howard, um, I think everybody grew up a little bit. And uh, from then on, um, that didn't happen. So you played 13 seasons in the NFL before retiring. After retirement, during that time, you became a majority owner of an Arena Football League team. You did a lot of TV football work. Eventually, you went back to your old high school and became the head coach there for five years. Is this safe to say that football really is a part of your blood? It's in your DNA? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, for for a sport that I really didn't care for early on, um, I learned to love it. And, and it's certainly been... Uh, uh, a part of everything uh, I've done since since the fourth grade and, and certainly enabled me to do a lot of things I never thought I would be able to do to have a tremendous amount of flexibility um, you know to to, to live uh, and raise uh, you know three three daughters to where they're almost off my payroll I'm getting there uh, <laughs> I have one left as a junior a junior in college so Pretty soon, I'll give myself another raise by not having to pay that tuition. <laughs> but uh, no doubt, um, I, and I never would have dreamed that as a young child. But uh, that's that's the way it's worked out. I'm sure there's tons of Buffalo Bills fans out there listening right now that want to know how you're doing, what you're up to these days, and do you still keep up with today's Buffalo Bills, and do you still keep in touch with a lot of uh, your former teammates from back in the day? Um. Having a friendship with Eric Wood has really helped uh, um, keep track of the team more. I mean, nowadays it's pretty easy to keep track of teams because of the internet and everything else. Every game's on if you want to catch it. But having Eric, you know, certainly kept me connected. And then I'm still good friends with you know Bruce and Jim and Thurman and Andre and Tasker and and, uh, and Daryl and Cornelius and uh, Chris Moore. We're all on a, a text chain together and and. Uh, we, you know, somebody's usually firing something on there every day, if not every other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're still keeping keeping track of them, and uh, I think I've been to at least one game. And it was hard when I was coaching high school football because, boy, that's a tough job. Sure. Um, I think I've been to at least one game every year for like the last ten. Oh, that's cool. All right, last question here, and then we'll wrap up with the mini lightning round. Your nephew, John Wolford, is a quarterback for Arizona and the Alliance of American Football. Playing very well, too. Leading the league in TD passes, second in yards. How is it watching your nephew play? Is it fun? Is it stressful? Oh, I absolutely love it. Now, his dad can barely watch. 
Um, I mean, he, he, he it's so stressful for him. It's almost unbearable for him to watch. I guess because he's quarterback and he's worried he's going to get killed. Uh, not at all for me. I, I absolutely love it. I was able to, I went down to Orlando uh, just a couple weeks ago and watched him play against Gail Gilbert's kid, Garrett. And they had a surprisingly a lot of people at the game at Central Florida Stadium. They had about 20,000 people and they were into it because the Orlando team was undefeated. And to get to watch, you know, family like that play. And, and now I get why quarterback parents are such idiots because I'm an idiot when I watch them. I mean, my <laughs> God, I'm ready to kill people around me who are making <laughs> negative comments. You know, I'm finally having to deal with it. You know, God dealt me three daughters, and, uh, and now I'm finally getting to, to see it as a parent. But I've been lucky. I think I've seen Johnny play at least one game a year since he was literally five years old, and he's always – He's always succeeded. Uh, you know, put him in a competitive situation, and he wins. Down in Jacksonville, when he was a freshman, uh, he goes to a big Catholic high school, and sure enough, he ends up starting four years. He goes to Wake, which he barely got a scholarship to Wake because he's only six foot tall, maybe five eleven and a half or whatever, and they're always dogging him about his height. So he almost, you know, at the last second, he scores a scholarship to Wake. He gets to Wake, and he starts forty seven straight games for them. So I'm just happy that this league exists to give him an opportunity to to compete. And if he gets to compete and he never makes it in the NFL at all, fine. But I think this league is going to give him an opportunity to at least get into a camp, learn it, you know, learn a playbook, and get to compete on equal footing. And we'll see what happens. Um, but it is absolutely. I haven't, you know, now that again, all those games are on TV, and Bill Point had a lot to do with it. So I need to thank Bill for a lot of different reasons. But it is freaking awesome to watch family playing that game, and they're doing a really nice job with that league. And I think they're going to be very successful. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's end mini lighting round. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever. The first thing that pops in your head, that'll be your answer. Kind of like a rapid-fire session. All right, you good? You ready? Gotcha. All right, toughest defense... Oh, uh, I really love these. <laughs> T- <laughs> I'm sure you do. Toughest defensive lineman you've ever played against? Uh, Bruce Smith and Joe Klecko. Gun to your head. I know this is an unfair question, but gun to your head, pick one. Who was your favorite teammate? Uh, Kennel. I'm sure there was plenty, but... What teammate do you consider the funniest teammate you ever had? Someone who made you laugh more than anyone else? Oh, God. Trey Thurman. Okay. Favorite non-sports related activity to do? Something you like doing that has nothing to do with sports? Nothing to do with sports. Well, horse racing, horse racing technically is a sport, but it's not like I'm doing anything with it. But I grew up with horse racing, so I know I know way too much about horse racing, front side, back side, through and through. Okay. As a player, you got to travel to many cities. I'm sure you've been to a lot of places after you retired and such. What's your favorite city to visit? I think that would be um, Salzburg, Austria. It was, um, it's just gorgeous. You'd have to be there. It's uh preserved it was not destroyed during world war ii it's just the history is 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 remarkable and it's a beautiful spot do you have a favorite sports movie uh gosh not really i have some that i don't like if anybody ever watches uh the movie secretariat Mm -hmm. it's just not accurate the same owner trainer 
and jockey won the derby the year before with a horse named Reva Ridge. And if you ever watch that movie, they just cut that completely out of it. So that's one I don't like because it's so factually inaccurate. You know what? Maybe that'll be a new question for future guests. I'll ask for a sports movie that they didn't like. That's actually more interesting than their favorite <laughs> yeah. one. Favorite singer or group? I just saw it. I just saw it a couple weeks ago. So. Oh, okay. Favorite singer or group? Uh, Rolling Stones and Tom Petty. Okay. God it, rest his soul. Last couple questions here. If you're at karaoke and you got a microphone in your hand, what's one song that you wish you could totally rock out that would have the crowd on its feet? Um, I'm not any good with it, and Eric Wood crushes it. It's the um, I should have been a cowboy song. Really, Eric crushes it. Oh, he's good at it, and I I, I don't know if I've ever even sang karaoke because I'm so bad at it. <laughs> I'm but, gonna have uh, to ask if, him I, if I could rock one out. That one, that one's a ton of fun. All right, if you had never played football in any capacity, what do you think you may have went on to do with your young life? Oh, besides wanting to be a pro basketball player or whatever, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing it. Um, uh, you know, when I, my first year in the NFL, I took certified financial planning classes um, through the University of Denver from after, after my first year because I thought I didn't know how long this was going to last. Uh, we weren't very good, and I was, I was as sore as a man could be. Um, and then I ended up end up getting into that. That was always my backup plan in college too. I had a minor in business and figured, uh, I didn't like reading well enough to be an attorney or a doctor or anybody at that real high level, but I enjoyed math and I enjoyed finance. All right. Second last question here. I know you don't tweet a whole lot, but you are on Twitter. Do you have a favorite follow on Twitter? Someone that you follow that you really enjoy, you look forward to seeing their tweets. Is there anyone specifically? Uh, there's a guy who does horse racing in New York. His name is David Aragona. And uh, I, I always get his tweets and I always read them because he's good. And, and right now, um, the wife's involved. Uh, we're involved in a couple different horses. And this this time of year, you're getting ready for the derby and, and whatnot. So uh, um, right now, he's a good guy to follow if you like horse racing. All right, last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, anyone you want in this world, celebrity, whoever, doesn't matter who you got. Who's at your table? Dinner, maybe a couple beers, whatever. Three from history. Anybody, uh, yep. Uh, Warren Buffett. Okay. Um, gosh. Abe Lincoln. Okay. Um, and I'll take Mr. Wilson. Perfect. Perfect. All right, guys, you can shoot Will Wolfer to follow on Twitter at Wolf6769. This was so cool. Will Wolford, everyone, I know, no Buffalo Bills fans are going to love hearing from you. Don't hear interviews from you too often, so this feels like a real special treat. Thanks for doing this, man. This was a lot of fun. Oh, no problem. I really enjoyed it as well. All right, the NFL draft is getting close. Draft Knicks out there getting so close, you could probably taste it. I'm going to launch a new exercise, a new segment on this podcast starting today, in fact, right now. And I'm going to do it every episode, in fact, between now and the actual NFL draft, which begins on Thursday, April 25th. 
doing the math here, looks like nine episodes. So nine times, including this one. The way it works, what I'm going to do is a four-round Buffalo Bills only mock draft. And if you're wondering why it's not going to be a seven-round mock draft, I'll tell you. In fact, someone on my show last week during my AMA segment asked why I'm not doing or asked if I'm going to do a seven-round Bills mock draft. The answer is clearly no. And I'm going to tell you why. The same thing I said last week. Rounds one and two, I'm pretty locked in on guys. Rounds three, it slips a little bit. Round four gets really iffy. After that, I just don't know these prospects well enough. I'd be guessing. It would be like the equivalent, and I used this last week too when I responded. It would be like me going to OTB and picking a horse for the Kentucky Derby. I, I look at the names. This horse has a, a cool name, so I'm going to pick this horse. Or to equate it to football, I like this guy's name. Or he went to Notre Dame, so I'm going to pick him because he's a Notre Dame guy or he's a USC or an Alabama guy. I don't know shit. I'd just be guessing. I'd be doing you a disservice. So I'm going to do four rounds and I definitely want your feedback. So if you have feedback afterwards, tweet me at Pamarin Tweets. The way it's going to work is I'm using the draftnetwork.com. And by the way, if you're listening, this is something that you or anyone else could easily do the same exact way I'm doing it. You go to the draftnetwork.com and it has a computerized mock draft and you pick the team that you're going to, to to draft for and the computer will do the rest for the other 31 teams. In fact, let's go through it right now as we'll get this started. So you go to mock drafts, start a mock draft. I'm doing this live in real time with you right now. So all the teams come up. I pick the bills. I click next. And then it says there's two ways you could use two boards, the draft network's predictive board or the player rankings. I'm going to use a predictive board because they do so many mock drafts that they have a formula and that's the way it plays out. So we'll do that. Select the number of rounds. We're going to do four rounds. And then it has the draft pick speed. You could go slow, normal, or fast. I'm not going to go through each team's picks leading up as we're doing this exercise. So I'm just going to click fast and it starts the draft. So now the first eight picks are coming up right now on the board. And then we're going to pick at nine for the bills. Before I get to that. Let's do let's do the first eight picks because I won't do this for the other rounds, but for the first pick, because they're all names that you're going to recognize. Let's see what the computer came up with. It's got Nick Bosa going off. I don't have to read the teams. I'll just read the guys that are gone. Nick Bosa one, Josh Allen two, Quinn um Williams three, Devin White four, Rashawn Gary five. That would be kind of a surprise. Kyle Murray going six to the Giants. Again, that would probably be a surprise, but whatever. They're probably going to be the first six guys of some order like that. Juwan Taylor goes seventh, and Montez Sweat goes to the Detroit Lions at eight. That puts us on the clock for the Buffalo Bills, ninth pick. I think this is going to be a little easier than I thought because previous mock drafts that I had done, not on the air, but just messing around, there were some where Montez Sweat or Juwan Taylor, one or both of them were also available, and that made it tough. The way this played out in this case right here, the Bills are on the clock at nine. DK Metcalf's the top rated guy on the board, but I honestly don't think the Bills are going to take a receiver. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. They're definitely not going to take one in nine. So DK Metcalf for me is out. Dwayne Haskins, the Ohio State quarterback, he's out there. Now in a perfect world, if you're Brandon Bean and trading down is an aspiration, Dwayne Haskins being on the board at nine would almost be your dream scenario because between him or Drew Locke, somebody is probably going to want to come up to that spot where Buffalo's at at nine. And, and get that quarterback, a team like maybe Washington at 15 or Cincinnati at 11, if they just want to move up from 11 to nine, 
gives the Bills, if Brandon Bean's looking to pick up an extra pick or two by moving down in this draft, he doesn't like the value at nine. Dwayne Haskins being on the board would be an absolute dream scenario for him. However, in this draft simulator, there's no mock trades, of course. So no Dwayne Haskins. To me, it's pretty cut and dry. And this scenario and almost any other scenario, Ed Oliver from Houston would be the pick. So let's just go ahead. The defensive tackle, you're replacing Kyle Williams right there. We're going to go ahead and draft him. And as soon as you pick your guy, the computer starts simulating all the other picks until you pick again. Now, Buffalo will be picking number 40 in round two. So the computer's going through. Again, I'm not going to read all the guys that are coming up. And here we are. We're on the clock again. Second round, just like that. I can tell you, of all the picks that I've done and all these mock draft simulators that I've done, this pick to me, and I haven't looked yet to see if he's on the board. If he is, it's the absolute lock. It's the easiest pick you'll have the entire draft. He's ranked 50th. And I would pick Irv Smith in an absolute second. So let's see if he's on the clock right now or if he's on the board. And he is. I would take him. End of discussion. I really don't need to say much more about Irv Smith, the tight end from Alabama. Perfect fit, perfect situation. I think this would be a dream scenario for the Buffalo Bills, being able to get Ed Oliver at nine and Irv Smith at 40. I think Oliver will be there at nine. I don't know that Irv Smith will be there at 40. And as it simulates to the next pick for the Bills, which would be round three, and it's pick 74, let me say one thing about Irv Smith. I would be willing, I don't think the Bills should wait to 40 to pick him because I'm not sure that he's going to be there. It worked out this time. I've done this probably, I don't know, maybe 20 times practicing before I started recording, and he was available at 40 roughly half the time. If I'm the Buffalo Bills, I absolutely am making a move to go up from 40. I don't know, four, five, six spots, somewhere in that range. I want to ensure that I get Irv Smith because Noah Font and TJ Hawkinson are going to go somewhere in that first round. I don't think the Bills are going to take them at nine. And I don't think that they're going to move all the way up to that mid, like maybe 15, 22 range for a second pick. Kind of like they did with Tremaine Edmonds last year, but I don't see him doing that this year. That's what it would probably take to get one of those tight ends. But I love Irv Smith. I love that he went to Alabama. Perfect fit for Josh Allen. Of course, Brian DeBall, the offensive coordinator. So anyway, he is the pick at 40. It worked out perfect. And now the Bills are on the clock again with their third pick at number 74. We've addressed defensive tackle. We've addressed tight end. You still need maybe an edge guy. And the team needs, by the way, and this is the other fun thing too with this, um, the draftnetwork.com. It also has the team needs for each team when you're picking, and it puts a line through as you address them. It has listed edge, wide receiver, corner, interior defensive line, or offensive line, I'm sorry, because we did already draft Ed Oliver, and linebacker. So we got the Bills on the clock at pick 74. And I've noticed from previous simulated mocks here, when you get to rounds three and four, there are a lot of running backs and wide receivers, a lot. And before making this pick, let me just say that in future simulated mocks that we do on episodes leading up to the draft, they won't be as long as this. Because we're doing this for the first time, I wanted to explain my rationale and my thinking behind each pick and positions and what I perceive as value and need. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but this is the reason why I'm thinking what I'm thinking. All right, so let's move on. I am of the mindset that I do not see the Bills taking a wide receiver anywhere 
near the top, safe first half of this draft. Here's part of the reason why. A guy that you take in the first, second, or maybe even third round, you're expecting them to do something as a rookie. That's the way it is in today's NFL. It's not like the past, like when Eric Moles was drafted in the in the mid-90s. He sat for a couple of years. He didn't do much. And it was his third year where he started to blossom and become a star. You don't have that luxury in today's NFL. And you look at the Bills wide receivers, okay? They signed Beasley and they signed John Brown. Those are two guys who are going to have significant roles. Beasley's going to be that slot guy right away for Josh Allen. And I think ideally Brown is going to be the player that they wanted Deontay Thompson to be, that small burner who gets down the field. I think that's the role they have for him. And then you got the holdovers from last year. Zay Jones is still developing. He's a work in progress, but he's he's a talented receiver. And Robert Foster, listen, I'm not saying he's going to be a number one guy, but he put up number one numbers in the second half of last season. Now that came off a complete shit training camp and uneventful start to the season. They got him cut, but something clicked in him and he clearly came on. Point being is this, that's four guys right there. If you take a guy, say in the second or third round, is he going to be a, the fifth receiver? If he's not, who becomes the fifth receiver? Is Zay Jones the fifth receiver? And I don't even know if fifth receiver is a good term because they signed Andre Roberts, the punt returner, who's probably going to be that quote-unquote fifth wide receiver. So to take a wide receiver in the first two, three, four rounds of the draft, where where's he going to play? And if he plays, who's out? Are you getting rid of Zay Jones? They're obviously not getting rid of Beasley or Brown. They're certainly not going to get rid of Foster. Is Zay Jones out? Maybe they draft a developmental guy, a big guy, because that is one thing this receiving unit is lacking is a big guy. But his role at best, especially just as a rookie, would probably be nothing more than maybe a red zone big target, like a Justin Hunter was when the Bills signed him a few years ago. So I don't see them taking a wide receiver early in his draft at all. And on that note, back to the Bills' third round pick, number 74 overall. Like I said, lots of running backs, lots of wide receivers, a couple corners. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to surprise some people right here. There's a safety from Virginia that I like a lot, Juan Thornhill. I think safety's a low-key need for the Buffalo Bills at this point. Not a lot of depth there after Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. Raphael Bush is third. I think Saran Neal is there. And they just signed... Maurice Alexander from Seattle, who's a special teams guy. Plus, he's going to be playing linebacker. Juan Thornhill, and I've read the reports, and I've watched a lot of highlight tapes of him. John Ledger from the Draft Network, and of course, Joe Marino, who was just on the podcast about a week and a half ago. Both had good reviews on him. He's 6'1", 195, projects more as a free safety, but he's kind of versatile. I just think that having a good third safety on this team right now would do a lot for this team, and he probably would get a decent amount of playing time relatively early. So I'm going to go off the board compared to what most Bills fans would think would be value and a need. I like this kid, so third round pick, 74 overall, safety from Virginia, Juan Thornhill. That's my guy. So now we wait for the simulator again. So as the simulator approaches, the Bills have two picks in the fourth round here. They'll be picking at 112 and again at 131. So far, we've addressed defensive tackle, we've addressed tight end, and we just took a safety. You could say that the Bills still need an offensive lineman, whether it's a guard or tackle, maybe an edge guy at defensive end. They've certainly have been sniffing around that at free agency. Of course, 
a running back could be in play as well. We've now arrived at pick 112. And just like I said the last round, when you get to this stage of the draft, there is a shitload of wide receivers and running backs. If you want a wide receiver or running back, but you don't want to use a high first round pick in this draft, I'm telling you, man, third or fourth round is definitely going to be where it's at. Again, like we discussed a couple minutes ago, for me personally, wide receiver is out. Running back, on the other hand, is very much in play. Now, there's a running back that I like from Washington State a lot, James Williams. He's 118 on the Draft Network big board. Let's see if he's available to pick at 112. He is not available to pick at 112. So now I kind of have a dilemma. I don't like any offensive linemen at this stage of the draft. Looking at this board value-wise. And one other position that I did not talk about is linebacker. I think the Bills definitely will want a linebacker at some point in this draft. Third round could be it. Maybe the fourth. But the problem is, at least going, if I put a lot of stock, which I do, into the big board here, there's no linebackers that are even close to being ranked around where the good value would be. So I got to have linebackers out. And that kind of brings me back again to a position where I think the Bills are going to take someone, and that is definitely running back. So yeah, I'm going running back with this pick. And just like I did explaining to you why I would not take a wide receiver, I'm going to briefly explain why I would take a running back in this position. They got three veterans right now. They don't need to take a running back in the third, fourth round, or even at all this year. They can wait to 2020 to address that position. McCoy, Gore, Ivory, I think they're going to go into training camp with all three of them. I think that they're going to go into the regular season with two of them. If something happens to one of them, they got two guys. If they all stay healthy, then I think Chris Ivory is going to be out. Unless maybe they find a trade partner and they deal a Sean McCoy. I wouldn't say that would be shocking, but it would be a surprise. But let's just assume that doesn't happen. I think they go into the season with Gore, LaShaw McCoy. Uh, you could call them one or two, however you want to do. It doesn't really matter. And then they get rid of Ivory and they have a young guy to start developing now. I think that's a smart move, the smart way to do it. They could take a guy who can be eased into the lineup with not a lot of pressure. And when I went through my list, like I said, I really liked the kid from Washington State, James Williams, but he's not there. Probably next on my list is Damian Harris, a running back from also from Alabama, just like Irv Smith. He's 5'10", 216, powerful runner, not the fastest guy. From what I've read, again, going by the Draft Network and a couple other sites and watching some clips, he kind of seems to me like, I don't want to compare him to Frank Gore, but he's that same type of player. So given the scenario and the situation that I just laid out, I'm going running back and my pick is Alabama's Damian Harris. He's the pick, and now we got one more to go in this four-round mock draft. The computer is simulating towards the Bills' last pick here at 131. And to recap, we have taken a defensive tackle, a tight end, a safety, and a running back. We could definitely use some help on the offensive line. The Bills could use a linebacker, but I just don't like the way the rankings are, at least on this Draft Network website. It just doesn't seem like there's any good value there. Maybe they could use a corner, not sold on Kevin Johnson being the answer, should Levi Wallace falter in his sophomore season. So here we are, we have arrived, pick number 131. For me with this pick, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go down the board. He's down the board a little bit on the draft network. I'm going to go with an offensive tackle from Oklahoma named Bobby Evans. Let me read the bio with him. It says, Evans projects as a starting left tackle in the NFL. 
His functional athleticism, length, and ability in the run game are all plus traits that should be centerpieces of Evans' usage in the NFL. The NFL team would be wise to focus on improving his initial release out of his stance to protect him, so on and so forth. Sounds like a guy who's not going to come in in year one and be a starter, but can grow into a very good player down the road, which for this team, that's fine because they have Deion Dawkins for now anyway on the left side, assuming he stays there, and they signed both Naseki and Adrian Waddle. So I think, the, I think the Bills are okay this year at tackle. They don't need to have a day one starter like, say, if Jawan Taylor or Jonas Williams were, uh, if Jonah Williams was to pick. I like this position here. Fourth round, you get a, a developmental guy, a guy who has a lot of upside, who could be a, a starter down the road. So there it is. That's your Buffalo Bills four-round mock draft. And again, this is in real time, which is really cool. When you sit down and write a mock draft, you can kind of navigate it so that your team ends up getting the players that they want. You don't get to control it on the draft network. That's the real cool part. You got to adjust to what happens in front of you. So I like doing that a lot. And the recap, the Bills, I gave Ed Oliver to them at nine defensive tackle from Houston. At 40, they got Irv Smith, the tight end from Alabama. 74, a bit of a surprise. Juan Thornhill, a safety from Virginia. 112 in round four, got Damian Harris, the running back out of Alabama. And at 131, also in round four, got Bobby Evans, offensive tackle from Oklahoma. Definitely would like your input on this. I think if there's a pick out there that I might second guess myself is Damian Harris. Not quite sure that another bruising type of running back is the kind of guy that they're looking for. They might be wanting a guy who's better at catching out of the backfield, but it is what it is. Again, this was real time. Maybe I just gagged a little bit under pressure. Lots of fun to do though. Give me your feedback. Tweet me at Pamaran Tweets. And again, ideally I'd like to do one of these Buffalo Bills four round simulated mock drafts. Every episode leading up to the NFL draft. Every episode might not be feasible. Maybe we'll do it once a week. There's two episodes in a week. So if I could do it at least once a week, but going forward, future mock drafts, I promise you, now that I've been able to explain my rationale behind some of these decisions, I could tell you going forward, they'll be a lot shorter. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Big thank you again, Will Wolford. Man, that was so cool. I absolutely love, I love having any former Buffalo Bill on this podcast, but to be able to get somebody from the Super Bowl era, I I love that even more. And especially somebody like Will Wolford, who, and I mean, you could check around, he barely ever does interviews. So to get him on this show, it made it extra special for me. And what a good storyteller he is, too. What a great interview. That story he had about his rookie season back in 86, where the Bills essentially tanked a game in Tampa to get Hank Fuller fired with Marv Levy becoming the head coach. What a story that is. What a tale. Thanks, Will. That was a lot of fun. Coming up on Friday's show, I have WGRZ longtime sports director Adam Benini. He's going to be my guest. Guys, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. It's quick, it's easy, it's free. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone or to your computer within just minutes of the release. 
That's always the benefit of subscribing to the show. Simply put, you're going to get it before anyone else does. We have new shows every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review. Again, that always helps the show tremendously. You can find us on where? Where can you find us? Okay. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. We also have a new YouTube channel. Just go on YouTube, search Analytics Podcast. Give that a subscribe as well. We're producing clips, highlight clips from podcasts. Going to have some original audio content. Eventually, I have some videos as well. So go ahead and do that. Lastly, if you could follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets, that would be great. Thanks again so much for listening. See you on Friday again with my special guest, Adam Benini. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.